Now, uh, moving on to preaching and to our, uh, our sermon series, we're starting a new series um, this month for the month. It's the start of the new year, and with all of this change that we're absorbing, it, it's, a, it's a good time for us to calibrate. It's a really good time for us to tune our engines. It's a good time for us to test our systems. And this rhythm of recalibration in January, it's something that we actually began in 2020. We started a series on spiritual disciplines called Rhythms of Grace in 2020. And then those rhythms got all kind of upset in March of 2020 as everything in the world changed. Can you believe that that is four years ago that that came down the pipe at us? I'm so glad it is behind us, but it has changed our world in some pretty significant ways. We started with that Rhythms of Grace series in 2020. Then in 2021 and 2022, we hunkered down in John 15. We spent some time in John 15 in the series called Abide, just trying to recalibrate what it looks like to dwell with the Lord Jesus. In 2023, we spent some time in Psalm 23. Uh, just looking at how our good shepherd is near to us. And now in 2024, we're going to get low before the Lord and seek to calibrate our prayer lives. Uh, we've, we've oriented this series week by week. Week one, God's glory. Week two, Christ's fame. Or, or week two, our surrender. Week three, Christ's fame. And then week four, our partnership in the mission of God. And we want to be just praying and orienting our prayer around this. So we've got some prayer guides uh, for you to, hang, to hand out. They're going to start coming through the rows right now and handing these prayer guides out. So whether you're, you're new to prayer or whether you have a complicated relationship with prayer or whether you love to pray or whether you just realize that you have neglected prayer in this season, this holiday season, I think that the next four weeks can, uh, re, uh, can, can, can genuinely help you and, and aid you. Uh, as we engage prayer together. So thanks to our youth, we're going to be handing these out. Uh, feel free to grab one. I don't know if we have pens too. Do we have pens? Do they have pens with them? If you need a pen, just raise your hand or make sure that they get some pens to be able to write in these too. Um, these prayer guides will, will help uh, you orient your, your daily prayers around the text of the week. And not only that, but they're also going to help forecast where we're headed this month so you know that the, tech, the scripture passage that's coming up. Um, I say this often, I haven't said it in a little while, but um, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. Do you know what I mean by that? Like how we go to bed, how we end our Saturday nights really um, help foster the way that we show up on a Sunday morning in order to engage the Lord, engage our church community. So I'm hopeful that these daily guides will just help orient us to the Lord in prayer during the day, but also um, know what's coming up throughout the week. And then the last hope is that this will help us together as we engage a prayer together as a community. Now, I'm glad to be preaching this because I think that I'm the one who's needing it. I don't know if I'm the only one who's needing it. Maybe you feel like you're needing it, but I know for a fact that I am. Prayer is always this decision that I have to make. It's usually, why? Because it's usually something, prayer is usually something that I actually push off, especially when I have a, a, a full plate, because 
prayer is a fight, is it not? Can I, get a, can I get a hand in the air if prayer is a fight for you? Am I the only? Okay, I'm not alone. Thank you. All right. We're together in that. When there are things to do, there's almost nothing that feels more inconvenient, inefficient than prayer. And in, my, in these last few months, my life has held so many details. I've been overwhelmed by details. Some of them I've done, you know, taken things on myself, but some has happened to me, whether they're surgical details or medical details or family member details or church details or equipment details or event details or contracts or communication or fundraising. All of those things, have they, they tend, when we live a busy and a, um, a fast pace of life, those kinds of things tend to work against a heart that is settled a heart that's relaxed, a heart that's at rest in the Lord, a heart that's awake to God and living as if God is always in the room. And for the record, God is always in the room. He's always in the room. He's here, present with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this moment through the singing of our songs, through our our prayers, through the proclamation of God's word, God is in the room. Hannah, in our Hebrew Bible in 1 Samuel, is a woman who lived her life like God was in the, in, in the room. And her story is actually told in 1 Samuel. So I want to invite you, if you would, would you just stand for the reading of God's word in this moment? This is a sign of, I want to read Hannah's prayer here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hannah was praying for a son. She had difficulty conceiving, and then she did conceive, and it it overwhelmed her heart with gratitude, and she chose to give her son Samuel to the, the, the work of the temple and to the temple priest Eli as her offering when he was about four years old to serve the Lord forever. The Lord would anoint Samuel Samuel powerfully. He would become a prophet, and he would inform Saul and David and forecast this coming Messiah, King Jesus, who came through the house of David as well. And this is what she prayed when she gave him to the work of the Lord and to the temple. And Hannah prayed and said, "'My heart exults in the Lord.'" My horn or strength is exalted or lifted up in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proud. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ashes. Make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. 
For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. Hannah's life was a challenge, significant challenge. She was a, a sister wife, if you know what I mean by that. Uh, her, uh, the old hubby decided he was into polygamy. He was into other women, and these other women weren't just around, but this other woman was actually living in the house. So Hannah had a rival, and this rival used to taunt her. Because Hannah couldn't have kids. And for women in 1000 BC, your honor and your worth was heavily tilted by the quantity and by the quality of your children. This other woman in the house, Panina, she would taunt Hannah and Hannah would ache to have a child. And the Bible says this in 1 Samuel 1, 6, and 7, her rival, Panina, used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So it went on year by year. As often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Panina used to provoke her. And therefore, Hannah wept aloud and would not eat. She's in a tough spot. She's in an incredibly tough spot. This is language, biblical language for depression. Depression had Hannah in the grip. To her, at that point, her future seems bleak. And when her, when her husband tries to comfort her, he just makes it worse. Ladies, you know this, right? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my wife knows this. Um, Elkanah, her husband, he says to her, for Samuel chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Now get this, how audacious is this? Am I not better than 10 sons? No, Elkanah, you're not. Now, I might be into polygamy here in a minute if you don't get it together, right? The word says that after they had spent some time in Shiloh eating and drinking, they were there for worship, Hannah rose up and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And the text says that she was deeply depressed and that she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And she, in her pain, she vows this vow and she says, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant and if you'll remember me and not forget me, but will give a son to me, then, then I'll give him, I'll give him back to you. I'll give him to you all the days of his life. Do you see what's happening here in this moment. She's in incredible distress. The reality is that she's ugly crying a lot. But in her pain, Hannah prays. In her pain, she comes to the Lord in prayer. She is longing for this gift of a son. And if the Lord will give her this child, if the Lord will deliver, she'll offer this new child back to the Lord all the days of his life. And what we read is that God did answer Hannah's prayer. 
And Hannah did fulfill her vow. And when Hannah had weaned her son, Samuel, this gift from the Lord at about four years old, she took him to the temple and she left him with the high priest, Eli, to do just that, to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. Can you imagine that? Moms and dads aching for a children. Some of you have been through this. And then to take this child at four years old and to let that child go. Sure, it was for a good thing, but can you imagine your own ache in that moment? I cannot imagine it. I cannot get my head around giving one of my kids over anywhere. As Hannah left her son Samuel with this temple priest, Eli, she prayed again. So she's praying in her pain and in her distress, but also as she gives him, there's got to be pain there, but there's also hope. And so we have actually her words, the words of this prayer that we just read, both in her bitter depression and in her abundant joy, Hannah is devoted to the Lord. I imagine that there are a bunch of you women in the room who, if you've spent any time in the scriptures, that you're probably familiar with Hannah's prayer. Ladies, are you familiar with Hannah's prayer? You've read it before? You've, you've heard it before? I would imagine, uh, maybe on the flip side, that a lot of the guys in the room are pretty ignorant to Hannah's prayer. Maybe this is something that is new to us. Men, I'm speaking to you directly. If you have not noticed Hannah's prayer before, I want, to, I want to ask you to put your eyes and your heart on Hannah's prayer. She is a serious, serious disciple of God Most High. A serious disciple. Probably more devoted to the Lord than anybody in this building. She is worthy of informing us how to pray and in following her example of prayer. And so if you're wanting, if you have a desire to learn how to pray, Hannah's is a good model to follow. In, in fact, in our New Testaments, in Luke chapter 1, Jesus' mom, Jesus' mother, Mary, her prayer is eerily similar to Hannah's prayer that's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Why? I think that Mary had certainly been influenced by Hannah's prayer. So when this big surprise in Mary's womb is revealed to her, her own heart, Mary's own heart had already been calibrated to want what God wanted through Hannah's prayer, which is God's glory. That's what Mary wanted, the glory of God. That's what Hannah wanted, the glory of God. And God's glory is the big theme of this prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we see this theme emerge in verse 1, and the tune will carry all the way through. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, she goes, My heart exults in Yahweh. The, the word Lord in all caps there is the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. My heart exults in Yahweh. My horn, or uh, horn is symbolic of strength in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so she's going, my strength is lifted up in Yahweh. My mouth actually derides, I can look down on my enemies because I'm looking up at the salvation that the Lord has given me. And she goes, there is none like that is holy like Yahweh. Why? Because there is none besides you. And she says, there is no rock. There is no foundation like our God. 
And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to be praying Hannah's prayer. And that's going to come at the end of this gathering this morning. And my hope is, as I set this up and talk about a few key things, my hope is that we are influenced and my hope is that we, you are inspired by it. I'm already there, already influenced, already inspired by it, been sitting in it over the course of this week. And I think if you will give your attention to it, your soul will find fresh satisfaction. So in your prayer guide on week one under God's glory, there are the days of the week and every one of those, there's a little prayer prompt there that's meant that comes right out of the verses next to it that's just meant to kind of give some summary language to what's contained there and help to kind of start you out of the gates. So whether you give it just a minute or whether you give it 10 or whether you give it 30, my hope is that we will let the scriptures begin to inform our prayers and that we'll, we'll begin to uh, grow, we'll actually grow as a people who are praying from open Bibles. Whenever we pray from an open Bible, we're letting God start the conversation, and we're taking what He has written to us and given to us in His Word, we're circulating it through our minds and our hearts, and then we're offering it back to Him in our own language as an act of exaltation, an act of worship, an act of praise, um, revealing our need and our dependence on Him. So, Here's the big idea today. God is glorified in us whenever we exult in him. God is glorified in you and I whenever. That is not a qualified whenever. That is whenever we exult in him. There's a couple of words to unpack in that statement. The word glory and the word exult. And so I want to do that with us this morning. Um, God's glory is the target of targets for serious disciples. It's the target of targets. It's what we want our lives to be about. It's what we want our effort to be for. It's what we want to happen through the story and the course and the actions and the words and all the stuff of our ordinary lives. We want for God to be glorified. But God's glory, I don't know if this is your experience, it can also be a bit of a fuzzy target too. Not fuzzy, not God's glory isn't fuzzy because it's undefinable, but it's fuzzy because the definition of God's glory has so many aspects and there are so many definitions. It's complex, it's vast, it's complicated. One writer says, how do you take the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, holy, glorious, and try to wrap all of that glory into an answer? It's hard. That's a hard theological answer to give. Not impossible. But what I want to do this morning is I want to just give us a, a, a helpful definition of glory from the guy who's probably written more on God's glory than anybody living today, John Piper. You know this about him, if you're familiar with his work or, or his preaching this is what Piper says about God's glory. He kind of has it in three parts, and I'll just unpack them briefly. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold perfections. Manifold is a word that means multi or many, not just a couple, but like an abundance. God's glory is the beauty of all of the different ways that God is perfectly perfect, flawless, supreme. So that's one aspect. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold perfections. A second, God's glory can refer to the bright and awesome radiance that sometimes break, breaks forth in visible manifestations. 
All over in the scriptures, we see bright light coming to people, people hitting the ground, people being overwhelmed with the presence of God. His glory shines. Like the sun shines on us, and it's hard to get our eyes on the sun. It's actually bad for us. So we too cannot see the glory of God just unshielded. It radiates with that kind of power and awesomeness and vitality. The third, God's glory can refer to the infinite moral excellencies of his character. There's a lot there. He is morally righteous and perfect. What he does is always correct. His knowledge is always perfect. And God's glory points to the infinite moral excellency of his character. In every way that his character can be described, he is infinitely perfect, all the way to the bottom, not a speck or a gram or a flaw or a chink or a crack, any of that in God's glory. None of it exists. He is perfect. God is glorified in us whenever we exult in him, whenever we try to express his wonder and his goodness, he is glorified. Whether we see it or feel it or know it or not, we, in our speech, are glorifying God. So that is a primer for glory. But here's the thing. It's like a Skittle when you're trying to taste the rainbow, right? Like it's just a little tiny bit, just helping to get us oriented, get a little taste of his glory in our mouths, but the work isn't done. So it'll have to do for today. But I want to also talk about the word exult. The Hebrew word exult shows up eight times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And this word exult is this word that's connected to rejoicing. It's a word that's connected to gladness, to joy, to praise, to triumph, to jubilee. Exult is a really happy word. It's a, it's a, it's a comforting word. It's an uplifting word. There's even a prayer in Psalm 25 where David is, he's in the dumps and he's being pursued by his enemies and he's asking God to protect him so that his enemies won't exult over his defeat, so that they won't boast over his defeat. And exult is this like pretty uncommon word in our day. Like who's used the word exult this week? Exactly. Like it's a really, it's a really uncommon word. But I think, man, I think we should bring this word back and begin to use it, work it into our language and define it with our friends as we do. Is this verb that we use when our hearts leap in joy around what God is doing in our lives. That's actually what the English form of exult means. It means leap out of, X out of, and then the, the remainder means leap there. So exulting is like when our language leaps out of us in praise and in honor and in boasting over what God does in us and what God is doing in his world and among us. In particular, the word exult is a word that is related to our speech. It's a verbal expression of joy. Exulting is what we say when we experience joy. We exult. 
We express joy in a number of ways, not just through speech, but speech is a major way that we express our joy. So, for example, when somebody believes the gospel, what do we do? Like, you got all of that stuff that's going up in your, that's welling up in your heart, and when they proclaim the name of Christ, and when you know it, you got to tell somebody, we exult when a person believes the gospel. When somebody is baptized, and the whole church is whooping, and is hollering, and we're celebrating, what are we doing? We're exulting. When somebody is healed, we exult. When marriages are restored, we exult. When we struggle, but we still believe God, and our hearts are leaping toward Him in dependence, we are exulting in him. We are looking to him to deliver us. So not only do we feel exultation in our souls, we we speak exultation joy with our lips. And so exulting in the Lord is this intensely practical way that your life and that your words can bring God glory. Did you hear that? Exulting in the Lord is an intensely practical way that your life and your words can bring God glory. Sometimes bringing God glory feels so intangible. Like, am I doing it? How am I doing it? But talking about him, talking about the way that he shows up, rejoicing with words in the way that God shows up, naming the ways that he provides, naming the ways that he protects, naming the ways that he sustains us, can be such a simple and frequent way to glorify God, to glorify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I often recoil when people use insider religious language. I don't know if you're similar in that way. I grew up in the church, but I also have a long history with drugs and hedonism and just chasing pleasure outside of good things and right things. Um, I don't easily trust a person that uses too much religious kind of insider language. I just find, it's just my, like, it's my bent. I just get a bit skeptical and, and I question really if I can trust it. Like, is this you? Are you just like putting a thing on? What are we doing here when that language is just so like specialized? I I think that we should use Christian language. I certainly think that we should use biblical language. We should let our words be informed, like a word exult that comes out of the scriptures. We should use those kinds of words and not not at all shrink back from using those kinds of words. But I do think that we should be aware of the people that we're around and that we should be ready quickly to translate those words in real time to help them understand what it is that we're talking about. Uh, Because here's what happens. When you and I use insider language with an outsider, it actually makes that outsider feel even more outside. That's what happens functionally, practically. So I've spent a lot of time in and out of the hospital with a family member over the last four months and talking to surgeons, talking to doctors, and they use precise medical language, and I'm not Yoda smart like they are with more degrees than Fahrenheit. They have that. And I'm kind of like five sentences back trying to catch up. I'm doing translation work as they're talking with precision. They have to. They're way out of my league, but I feel like an outsider in that room. I walk in thinking I'm a peer. I'm not a peer. Not even close. I'm a family member, a loving, devoted family member of the patient. 
I'm also needing to be taken care of. Could you translate that for me? Because I feel so dumb right now. I don't know what occlusion means. I do now. If you want to exult in God, in your everyday conversations with people, make it your habit to exult in God in your prayers. If you want to start talking and exulting and naming the specific ways that God has shown up for you in your conversations with people, begin to do that in your praying life. Start naming to him the ways that he shows up for you. This way of praying will actually spill over into our way of talking. It'll happen. It might not happen day one. It might not happen week one. It will happen. The more that we pray like this, the more that we will begin to talk with exultation in our sentences. So if you put exultation on in prayer, God will help pour exultation out from your lips. God is glorified in us when we exult in him, whenever we exult in him. So that is a long lead up and intro to a moment here where I just want to take the words of Hannah's prayer over three or four minutes. I want to ask you to posture yourself in a way of receiving, in a way of joining me in this prayer. And I want us as a congregation, if you're new with us, this is what we do, man. We're not here to entertain you. We're here to seek the Lord with you. And we want you to be a part of us. And we want you to throw in deeply with us. And we are a people who are in pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though prayer moves us into a space sometimes of awkwardness in a room together, we are not afraid of that. We want to pursue God in the way that honors him, not in the way that just only feels good to us at any given moment. So if you're willing, would you, uh, would you just take a moment to kind of posture yourself ready to join me in prayer? I'm going to pray this prayer over us. And before, um, before I do that, there's, I'm going I'm to give another invitation at the end. Uh, I'm going to, if you have a desire in your heart, in your soul to exult in the Lord and for exulting in the Lord to become more and more normative for you, for it to become more your way of life. After I pray this prayer of Hannah, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just stand up where you are. I know that that takes a little bit of courage, but I'm just going to, at that moment, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to ask the people around you to stand with you and to put a hand maybe on your back or on your shoulder and to just intercede for you and that the Lord would show up for us. So the rest of our time is going to be prayer and worship, and then we're going to go to the table of communion and we're going to receive communion together. So would you, uh, just as a sign of readiness to receive, would you just turn your hands up on your lap or on your chair or just right there in front of you, just palms up. It's, a, it's not a magic thing. It's just a bodily posture that just shows, however that works for you, whatever that looks like for you, that just shows that, that we are open to the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we join Hannah who prayed 3,000 years ago. We join her this morning. Her heart exulted in the way that you showed up for her. Our hearts are leaning in the direction of exultation with you. Lord, I recognize how 
My strength is exalted in you. And I know it's true for every other person in this room that when we come to you and when we seek you, our strength rises as we wait upon you, as we look to you. And it's from this posture of confidence in you that we are not shaken by our enemies because we rejoice in your salvation. We rejoice in the fact that you are our God and there is no other. Like Hannah, Lord, there is none holy like you. There is none beside you. You have no rivals and no equals and no competitors. There is no sure foundation to build our life upon but you. You are the rock, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we build our lives upon. And so would you do a humbling work in us? Would arrogance not come from our mouths? Would we be known as a humble people? You are a God of knowledge, so search us and try us and reveal the grievous ways in us and lead us in your everlasting way. You weigh our actions. May we live as people who are living in light under the sovereign eye of God, but also who are resting in the gospel. So as we fall, would we remember, as we uh, sin against you, would we remember the gospel for our own souls? Father, you are infinitely strong. You break the the bows of the mighty, the feeble, they, they, they caricature strength, but you are the true strong one. There's this way about you where you You turn the world upside down. You humble the proud and you exalt the humble. Those who are hungry, you promise that you will feed. Those who ache for children, you do deliver. Those who are proud in our hearts, you will humble. Lord, you are sovereign over everything. Verse 6, in Hannah's prayer, as you... She understands how the world works. You put to death and you bring to life. So we humble ourselves before that truth. Protect us from shaking our fists at you as if we're your counselors. You bring people down to the grave, but you also raise people up from the grave You are the God of resurrection. We look to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and his promise that we will be resurrected as well. You are sovereign over everything. You make poor, you make rich, you bring low, you exalt. You raise the poor up from the dust. You lift the needy from the ash heap to give them the seat of honor. You will give your people glory. You've already put your spirit within us who is glorious and we thank you that we have you, Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for guarding our feet. Would you keep us faithful? Would you guard us from sin and from wickedness? Will you guard us from unbelief? We thank you for your justice that the wicked will be cut off. A man cannot conjure enough strength, even if all of us were to put it together, eight billion of us, we cannot prevail against you. 
I'm reminded, Father, of the, 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 the quote that me plus you equals a majority. Us plus you equals a majority. You are the majority. The adversaries of yours will be broken to pieces. I thank you for your justice. I thank you for dealing with sin and evil. You will thunder against them. You will judge the ends of the earth and you strengthen your king. This came through Samuel, Lord. I give you thanks for your revelation, for redemptive history. Saul became the first king. He gave up his spot. You brought David forward. You prophesied that a king would come from the house of David who would reign forever. And so we look to you, King Jesus, as the fulfillment of that prophecy and the one who saves us, our king, who is reigning at the Father's right hand even now and who governs and inspires and intercedes for us, to us, through us, through your spirit. So thank you for exalting the strength of King Jesus who has beat death, sin, Satan, and everything that comes against you. Lord Jesus, make us a praying people, please. We pray this in the name, above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.